This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Let's start out today's program with a quote. This one comes from Margaret Atwood and is, Stupidity is the same as evil, if you judge by the results, which is appropriate for the fact that this Earth Day, April 22nd, marks a day in which people all over the nation are going to demonstrate in favor of science. A lot of people are spouting off about this, and I think we ought to join them. The editors of the East Bay Times said that one of the earmarks of a thriving nation is respect for its scientific community. And here's how bad things are in America today. Scientists feel so under siege, they've called for a march for science on Earth Day. The paper notes that of all places, the Bay Area should respond in force, knowing the vital role scientific research plays not only in our economy, but our very lives. They note that for most of the past century, the United States' funding of basic scientific research yielded technologic breakthroughs that made it the envy of the world. It was called Yankee Ingenuity and led to an unprecedented era of prosperity. But now, evidence-based research is under attack to a stunning degree. Researchers' budgets are shrinking fast, and when politicians decide scientific conclusions are not to their liking, they simply shut down that line of research. San Francisco Chronicle sounded off on it in their Insights section. Last Sunday, they noted that the White House war on science has researchers, quote, nervous as hell, unquote, about the Trump administration. Piece by Jonathan Foley notes that scientists are now worried because there's been a sudden seismic shift in Washington, D.C., and in the connection between facts and science. The relationship between science and politics has moved from mild friction to an all-out war. The acceleration of the war on science began in January with bizarre claims by the White House clearly contradicting empirical facts regarding the size of crowds, electoral victories, and vote fraud. Then Kellyanne Conway, an advisor to President Trump, suggested alternative facts rather than actual truth were in play. Says Foley, I don't know what alternative facts are, but my parents called them falsehoods and lies. Foley notes that it's worse than that. Facts and science are being attacked because they matter a lot. And this attack is using a well-honed strategy. The White House follows the Merchants of Doubt playbook to discredit well-established scientific findings. When you can't win a debate with facts, it's easier to cast doubt and interject confusion into the conversation, as was done to mislead the public about the dangers of tobacco smoke and acid rain. So it's not surprising that President Trump and Environmental Protection Agency Administrator Scott Pruitt frequently use words to suggest that climate change might not be real, routinely saying, we're not sure, despite overwhelming scientific evidence to the contrary. The goal isn't to discover the truth, but to muddy the waters and to delay action as long as possible. Then there are efforts to muzzle scientists. In late March, the U.S. Department of Energy dictated staff to stop using the term climate change. He goes on to note that it's only been three months since Trump took office, but it's clear that scientists are losing this war and losing badly. And you know, it gets worse. Going through some of my archives, I found a piece that was not what you'd call current, it was from New Scientist magazine. The title was The Fall of Reason. A piece by Richard Koch and Chris Smith notes that science has been at the heart of Western society for centuries. So why is it under attack as never before? The bad news is that this piece was written 
in the June 26, 2006 issue of New Scientist. And of course, it's only gotten much worse over the past 11 years, but let's just see what they were saying back in 2006, shall we? New Scientist noted that science for the past 600 years has been virtually a Western monopoly. The piece asked the question 11 years ago, why has science for the past 600 years been virtually a Western monopoly, and what explains its decline in standing today? The authors note, the answer to both questions is the same. Sometime between the 13th and 15th centuries, Europe pulled well ahead of the rest of the world in science and technology, a lead consolidated in the following 200 years. Then, in 1687, Isaac Newton, foreshadowed by Copernicus, Kepler, and others, had his glorious insight that the universe is governed by a few physical, mechanical, and mathematical laws. This instilled tremendous confidence that everything made sense, everything fitted together, and everything could be improved by science. This was crucial. In medieval and early modern Europe, when science made its greatest strides, scholars believed the secrets of the universe could be unraveled because they had been implanted by a reliable and all-powerful creator God who had written nature's rules in a dependable way. In other words, the full emergence of science required belief in one all-powerful God whose perfect creation awaited rational scientific explanation. This condition was peculiar to Christianity. In other religions, there was no consistently rational creator. The universe is inexplicable, unpredictable. Still, it took Christians more than a thousand years to invent modern science. Yeah, I've got quite a pile of old documents we used for the creation of Radio Parallax from 2005, talking about intelligent design, this great backlash that's been rearing its ugly head in this country for really, unfortunately, generations. We talked, I don't know how many times in this program, about the inroads creationism was attempting to make and the teaching of science in this country. We pointed out that creationism really is a fraud, although some people like William Salatan writing in Slate.com 12 years ago said that, well, it's a huge admission of defeat on the part of fundamentalists. These intelligent design advocates have abandoned the Bible literalism of their forebears and have adopted the scientific method not authority is the ultimate test. They now acknowledge, for instance, the Bible is wrong about the age of the earth and that it's billions of years old. Well, I got news from Mr. Salatan. Uh, no, uh, many of them do not. And unfortunately, as the Republican Party has welded together various factions to create something close to parity in the electorate, I mean, after all, the Republicans got within three million votes of Hillary Clinton last November. One of the big groups they rely upon in this red state surge are Christian fundamentalists. A lot of this doubting of science springs from these efforts to attack Darwin, etc. In several opinion pieces that, well, the rest of the world views America as the land that doubts evolution. Writing in the Glasgow Herald, a couple of authors said that, uh, well, Americans are struggling to reconcile science and faith, whereas here in Great Britain we have long studied science in science class and religion in church. The London Independent said something rather chilling, considering it was written in August 26, 2005. They noted that the U.S. presidents don't do facts. All the scientific fact the world experts can muster, for instance, hasn't persuaded President Bush of the reality of global warming. His White House is much more comfortable with Christian literalism. The Independent noted 12 years ago that a poll taken at that time found that almost half of Americans believe that God created humans fully formed less than 10,000 years ago. And 
<laughs> One thing that seems to be uniting uh, Christian fundamentalists and Muslim fundamentalists is a belief in creationism. Commenting a decade ago in Radio Netherlands.nl, Nicolin Den Boer noted that America isn't the only place where science is under siege. In Amsterdam, Muslim creationists are waging a stealth campaign to try and make Europeans doubt the truth of evolution. They have blitzed European schools with copies of an 800-page Islamic textbook called The Atlas of Creation. The Turkish author Harun Yahya holds that Darwin's theory is responsible for all the evil in the world, including international terrorism. Yes, the sad state we find American science in at the moment didn't just arise overnight. How about this item from the archives from 11-19-05? This comes from the Daily Telegraph in the UK. Piece by Nicholas Wapshot. Quote, an exhibition celebrating the life of Charles Darwin has failed to find corporate sponsors because American companies are anxious not to take sides in the heated debate between scientists and fundamentalist Christians over the theory of evolution. The entire $3 million cost of Darwin, which opened at the American Museum of Natural History in New York yesterday, is instead being borne by wealthy individuals and private charitable donations. Notes the piece, the failure of American companies to back what until recently would have been considered a mainstream educational exhibition reflects the growing influence of fundamentalist Christians who are among President George W. Bush's most vocal supporters. Fast forward to the current edition of The Week magazine, April 21st. Their excellent briefing section is titled The EPA at a Crossroads. This is worth a slight digression. The magazine notes that the EPA began in 1970 under Republican President Richard Nixon. It should be noted that until that time, only the states had enforced environmental laws. The first administrator, William Ruckelshaus, noted that the states competed with one another so fiercely for the location of industry that they weren't very good regulators of those industries. Ruckelshaus started by trying to establish and enforce air quality standards and target major water polluters. It wasn't until Congress passed landmark environmental legislation, however, that the EPA gained real muscle. The legislation was the Clean Air Act, which predated the EPA in 1963, but was amended in 1970 to give the EPA broad powers to regulate emissions from smokestacks and tailpipes, including the phasing out of leaded gasoline. In 1972, the Clean Water Act granted a similar authority over waterways and wetlands. Congress also empowered the agency to regulate pesticides and ban DDT, which, of course, at that time was sprayed all across the country to kill mosquitoes, but was so toxic it nearly wiped out several bird species, including the bald eagle, which, as we talked about on last week's program, is finally making a comeback. The piece notes that the agency's work had a major impact on air and water quality, but its regulations proved controversial. A picture accompanying the piece shows a very smoggy day in an American city back in that era. And, well, all you have to do is compare that to current pictures of China and India to realize that without environmental regulations, things can get very bad indeed. But in terms of the EPA being controversial, the briefing section notes that industries found the regulations too complex and costly and argued that the constraints demanded of federal bureaucrats for permits and clearances were killing jobs and strangling the country's economic growth. Businesses large and small came to view the EPA as an adversary. They found an ally in Ronald Reagan, a proponent of small government who campaigned against environmental extremists, quote-unquote. In 1981, Reagan named Ann 
Gorsuch as his EPA administrator. By the way, she's the mother of the new U.S. Supreme Court Justice Neil Gorsuch. She was an outspoken agency critic who made deep cuts in the EPA and invited regulating and invited regulated industries to rewrite rules to their liking. She didn't last long because cleaning up the environment enjoyed widespread popular support. But looking back on it, it should be noted that air pollution is down 70% since the EPA was formed. And again, if you don't believe that's true, just look at current pictures of China and India, where the smog is ungodly. Looking forward to what's likely to happen in the future, of course, it's been noted by many that the current EPA administrator, Scott Pruitt, is a climate change skeptic with ties to fossil fuel interests, who, as Oklahoma's attorney general, brought more than a dozen lawsuits against the EPA. Trump's original plan was to slash the EPA by 31% and eliminate 50 programs. Christine Todd Whitman, former EPA administrator under President George Bush, under President George W. Bush, and we like to note former Radio Parallax guest, has said that what they're trying to do is eviscerate the agency. What's going to happen? Nobody knows. But a recent Gallup poll found that 71% of Americans favor protecting the environment over more fossil fuel dependency. A Pew Research poll late last year found that Americans ranked the environment 12th on their list of concerns, but they note that perhaps that's because there are no longer so many billowing smokestacks and sewage and chemical-choked rivers. Noted at William Ruckel's house, to a certain extent, we are victims of our own success. It is not so obvious to people that pollution problems exist and that we need to deal with them. And of course, with this little stunt that was pulled in Congress by denying President Obama a seat on the Supreme Court, by holding the seat open in the hope that a Republican would win in, no- in November, the GOP has, um, has gotten a conservative back on the Supreme Court to hopefully maintain their conservative majority. Well, when I say hopefully, I mean hopefully to them. But based on the notion that the apple doesn't fall very far from the tree, let's take a look back at his mom. The briefing section includes a little sidebar about Ann Gorsuch, noting that before Neil, there was his mother, the EPA's first female administrator, known for wearing fur coats, driving a gas-guzzling Cadillac, and smoking two packs of cigarettes a day. Gorsuch took Washington by storm. She cut her agency to the bone, slashing enforcement actions by 73%, rolled back clean air and water rules, promoted, quote, voluntary compliance by industry, unquote, and sped approvals for spraying restricted pesticides and purged the agency of employees deemed too zealous. After two years, Gorsuch was forced to resign in a scandal over mismanagement of a Superfund program. She remained embittered for the rest of her life, saying President Reagan abandoned me and my people, people whose only crime was loyal service. Gorsuch died of cancer at 62 in 2004. And and no, we don't know whether it was lung cancer from that two-pack-a-day habit, but maybe. I don't want to do the whole segment on this, but it's a darn depressing topic. We would refer you also to Rolling Stone, which unfortunately has to carry the ball for a lot of good political writing in this country, seeing how... um, abandoned it is by much of the mainstream media, but Tim Dickinson's piece from Rolling Stone of February of 2016 titled The Dirty War on Solar Power is worth a look. It does point out how politicians that are in the pay of industry can thwart efforts to do the right thing. In this case, Florida, which probably has more sunshine than any state in the union, with the possible exception of California, in fact is one of these least solar-powered states in the nation. 
This is because down in Florida, investor-owned utilities, IOUs, reap massive profits from natural gas and coal-generated electricity. They've therefore put obstacles in the path of people who would like to just basically, like we do in California, go up on your roof and put solar panels. This is basically illegal in Florida. And perhaps not coincidentally, Republican Florida Governor Rick Scott's narrow 2014 re-election was financed by more than $1.1 million in contributions from those IOUs. Governor Scott has earned ridicule down in Florida for allegedly banning state officials from using the terms global warming and climate change. Anyway, I guess it's time to take a, I guess it's time to go out and march in favor of science. I must say that I'm somewhat depressed at this stage in life to realize the extent to which people do believe what they simply prefer to believe in. And while we definitely do not subscribe to the um, oft-repeated allegation by Fox News and such that there's a liberal mainstream media out there which apparently is working tirelessly to thwart the corporate interests of you know their various parent companies, we do at the same time recognize that most journalists out there are not investigative journalists and that uh, being that people are lazy and that people are bribable, a lot of folks doing PR out there seem to be very good at getting their point across to the public. Case in point, we talked about it last week on the show, the attack of various Tomahawk missiles on Syria. President Trump evidently launched 59 Tomahawks at the cost of a half a million dollars a pop. Because it has been alleged, the Syrian government has committed sarin gas atrocities against its own population. We expressed some doubt that it was the Syrian government behind the 2013 attacks in Syria because it is known that various jihadist insurgent groups in Syria have obtained such weapons from takeover stockpiles in Iraq. Without professing to know what happened a week or two ago in Syria, we would just say that it certainly seems possible that the sarin gas loosed in the population was not the direct result of the Syrian government's actions. But man, once those tomahawks were launched, people were given attaboys all over the place. I'm talking about people in the media. And what about North Korea? I learned while having a cup of coffee yesterday morning at one of my local coffee shops, apparently the armada that President Trump had bragged about sending off to the coast of North Korea was in fact in Australia. It was down there as part of some routine maneuvers that we, that we conduct with our supposed allies. I guess the Aussies are by treaty United States allies. But I guess in Trump's mind, you know, <laughs> fleet sailing off in the Western Pacific, well, it's, you know, it's a fleet sailing off the Western Pacific. We could certainly redirect them north to North Korea. It's only, what, 5,000 miles? Yeah, I suppose if they take a hard right, uh, they might be able to get up to North Korea, what, I don't know, three weeks? I don't know. That's a wild guess. I do know that the president tweet, <laughs> there's a Freudian slip for you. President Trump tweeted that North Korea is looking for trouble and vowed that the U.S. would solve the problem alone if China refuses to help. The Trump administration has said it's considering all options for stopping North Korea's nuclear efforts, including stationing nuclear weapons in South Korea and launching a decapitation strike to take out Kim and his top aides. You know, the talk shows this past week were just full of jabber about 
about Kim Jong-un and North Korea and the threat that they pose to America because they apparently do have missiles and they apparently do have atomic weapons. So naturally, it seems possible you could put the atomic weapons on top of the missiles if you can get them to work, which apparently they don't, and launch them all the way across the Pacific to attack the United States. The scenario seems a bit dubious because of the fact that Kim Jong-un, by no account, appears to be a suicide bomber. Rather, he appears to be the, a guy that likes to have, you know, gourmet fl- food uh, shuttled in from Europe on a regular basis, including, you know, good liquor, uh, evidently Swedish stewardesses uh, are sometimes entertained in North Korea. Although God knows, I don't know what uh, Swedish flight attendant in her right mind or his right mind would go to North Korea to be entertained, but you do hear that. One thing's for certain. The people in charge of the country like being in charge of the country. And from their standpoint, if you, you know, brandish a a sword, a nuclear sword, and wave it at the United States, it it seems to at least be giving people pause about going in there and attacking with one of these decapitation strikes, quote-unquote. It seems likely that the North Korean government has noticed that when you give up your nuclear weapons programs, like Libya and Iraq did, that, well... (laughs) Being a dictator of a country without nuclear weapons anymore sometimes can work against you. Now, we're not defending the government of North Korea here at Radio Parallax. We're just saying that, you know, some of what they're doing is rational on a certain level. Uh, Anyway, when it comes to making attacks on that part of the world, we should note that um, this past week marked the 75th anniversary of the Doolittle Raid. This evidently was commemorated down in the Bay Area by the USS Hornet, uh, from which the bombers were apparently launched during World War II. This was really sort of a propaganda effort by the U.S. to show that we could bomb the Japanese mainland, quote-unquote. Not a great deal of damage was done to the country or to its war effort, but it did apparently change the thinking of the Japanese leadership on how they should conduct the war. They had to be more defensive than they had been thinking they needed to be. But 75 years later, people are still debating over, you know, militarily what was accomplished. All right, at this point, let's just jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly, shall we? Week magazine and Axios.com. It was a good week last week for expanding government accessibility with the word that several aides with no connection to national security joined President Trump at his Mar-a-Lago situation room during the Syria airstrike last week. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin, Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, and National Economic Council Director Gary Cohn sat side-by-side with Trump's national security advisors and Secretary of State. We do not know whether Ivanka was in attendance. It was, on the other hand, a bad week last week for the Internet of Things, with the word that evidently the makers of an Internet-enabled garage door opener responded to a customer's negative online review by disabling his device. Citing the customer's abusive language, the company Garage Gadget said it would not tolerate any tantrums and canceled his server connection. 
And it was an ugly week last week. Well, we're not sure whether it's the Internet of Things. It, it might be, but it certainly was for citizens of Dallas with the news that an anonymous hacker caused all 156 emergency tornado sirens in the city to simultaneously sound off just before midnight and shriek for 90 minutes. They woke up more than 1 million residents and flooded 911 with panicked calls. And it was both a bad and ugly week last week for President Donald Trump with the news that after checking, it was determined that he had uttered at least 367 false or misleading claims during his first 81 days in office. He made 30 of them alone on February 28th when he erroneously claimed that America had spent $6 trillion fighting wars in the Middle East. It's actually $1.6 trillion from 2001 to 2014, and that he had performed better among Hispanics and African Americans than past Republican presidential candidates. By the way, I should have known a little bit earlier when I decided to jump ship that we have an article we're holding in reserve, also from Rolling Stone, titled Gospel of the Climate Deniers by Andy Kroll, asking why do Republicans still reject the science of global warming. But don't worry, we'll get back to it. Something else we may want to get back to is the controversy about chemical giant Monsanto and its product, Roundup Weed Killer. A lawsuit has been filed in Oakland by the consumer attorney firm Baum, Hedlund, Aristel, and Goldman, and environmental lawyer Robert F. Kennedy Jr. The plaintiffs allege that Monsanto promoted false data and attacked legitimate research that showed the danger of glyphosate, an ingredient in its popular weed killer. Forty California residents are suing Monsanto, alleging that exposure to Roundup caused them to develop non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. The complaint filed in Alameda County Superior Court seeks compensatory and punitive damages. We'll see if we can't follow that one. All right, in a minute or so we have left. Let's do a couple of items from the miscellaneous file that involve alloys. The first is a piece from New Scientist I've been sitting on for months. It came in response to the question, why is stainless steel stainless? I was intrigued by the answer, which in this case came from Robert Sr., retired from British Steel, who noted that stainless steel was discovered by accident about 100 years ago, just before the First World War. The British Army had a problem. Its new explosive cordite rapidly wore out gun barrels. The search was on for a high-temperature, wear-resistant steel, and where better to hunt than in Sheffield, the city of steel in north of England, where Harry Beardley was in charge of the laboratories selected for his work. He followed a promising line, alloying iron with chromium. The standard way to examine the structure of a new alloy is to polish a sample, then etch its surface with acid so the crystal structure can be seen under a microscope. Beardley tried to etch his new alloy with nitric acid, but found he still had a polished surface. Somewhat annoyed, he tried another acid. That was no better. After trying several other acids, Frustration turned to elation when he realized he'd discovered a corrosion-resistant steel. And if you're keeping track, to be called stainless steel, it has to contain at least 10.5% chromium. The most common composition out there for household use is 18%. But if you're going to have uh, some very high-quality stainless steel, it may be as much as 26%. And depending upon the desired properties, other metals may be added, such as nickel, which reduces brittleness at low temperature. And you wouldn't think that a metal alloy might have something to offer men suffering from erectile dysfunction. 
But that's what scientists at the University of Wisconsin-Madison are claiming. They're using nitinol, a nickel-titanium alloy known for its elasticity and shape memory, to develop a device that expands when heated. Yes, by using nitinol to make a penile implant, well, it remains flaccid at normal body temperature, but becomes erect when warmed slightly, returning to its flaccid state upon cooling. And no, we're not sure what they mean by slightly. We can tell you this, men fitted with one will get an erection every time they bathe in hot water unless they drape a cold, wet towel over their groin, which is really no way to bathe in hot water, if you ask me. Brian Lee, who evidently led the research in this area, says he hopes it will offer men with treatment-resistant erectile dysfunction an option that's simpler and less awkward than an implant requiring a penis pump. They're also working on a remote control that would activate the implant using heat induction when waved over the penis. I must say that in my third of a century in medicine, one of the saddest things I've observed is how, despite the fact that we have very reliable injections that in most instances will solve the problem of ED in men who are who have not responded to oral medications, they're just not widely known about by physicians or used. If you do want to uh, learn more about that, you can look up a website, which I use to post data on this. It's titled doctorscliniforMen.com. Let's take a short break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Parallax. 